Well, every disaster movie has its prophet. The prophet is the crazy-eyed, long-haired man in the wilderness screaming that the end is coming. Woody Harrelson does a pretty good job playing the role of the prophet in the movie 2012, which portrayed the end of the world as was predicted in the Mayan calendar. Now, Harrelson was written off as a conspiracy theorist by most until his predictions turned out to be correct in a cataclysmic display of fire erupting from the ground. Of course, by the time his predictions proved to be correct, there was little anybody could do anything. This morning, we're going to start a new series at Rooftop. It's a series about another crazy-eyed, long-haired prophet who predicted the end of the world. The end of his world, at least. During his day, the prophet was also written off by some as a conspiracy theorist. Like most, most prophets in the Bible, he is ignored, ignored and ridiculed, but he is eventually proved to be correct. Although by the time he is proved to be correct, there is little anybody can do about it. I'm talking about the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a poet prophet in the nation of Judah in the 8th century before Jesus. At this time in their history, God's people had become a moral and spiritual disaster movie. God had founded the nation of Israel to be a light to the nations, a chosen people through whom he would demonstrate his power and goodness. Now, Israel had a few good years, but over time they became just another pagan nation. They worshipped idols, they ignored God's moral law, they ignored the poor, they even had a big civil war and split into two nations, the nation of Israel to the north and the nation of Judah to the south, Isaiah's nation. Now God sent them prophets, warning them that if they did not remain true to their covenant with him, the end of their world would come. The people ignored these prophets, so God sent them one more. God sends a man named Isaiah to warn the people of Judah to the south that they are likely out of chances. It might be too late to change their ways. The end is coming, and there might be nothing they can do about it. I want to jump into the series this morning, but first I actually want to address a couple of questions about Isaiah to, or about the series of, of Isaiah, uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page. First, why are we studying Isaiah? And secondly, how? How are we going to study this book? First, why? We're studying Isaiah for a few reasons. First, we like to maintain a healthy teaching diet here at Rooftop. By that I mean we like to study different parts of the Bible and different types of topics to speak to different sorts of of people. You want to maintain a healthy diet. Eat different courses, if you will. Uh, we've studied Jesus recently. We've studied Paul recently. But it's been a while since we've studied anything from the, from the Old Testament. Now, if Jesus is, speaking in the metaphor, if Jesus is the meat and Paul is the potatoes, the Old Testament might be our vegetables. So we're going to eat some of our vegetables for a while. And we're not just going to nibble at the asparagus. We're going to dive into the salad bowl but we're going to be healthier for it. Also, we're studying Isaiah because it's a confusing and important book that needs to be studied. I've actually avoided Isaiah most of my life because it's not an easy read. I mean, it's ancient Hebrew poetry, and the book isn't even that well organized. 
Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he actually said this about the book and about all the prophets. He said, the prophets have an odd way of talking. Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see where they are going. That's Martin Luther talking about the prophets. They just tend to ramble, he says. Whenever I open the book of Isaiah, I feel that confusion. But even though it's confusing, Isaiah is important. Isaiah is important because of what it reveals to us about God. Isaiah is important because of what we learn about the story of Israel, which is in many uh, senses our story. And Isaiah is important because of what it has to say about Jesus. Uh, the New Testament, that portion of the Bible written after, the, after and about the life of Jesus, it quotes Isaiah more than any other book in the Old Testament other than the book of Psalms. So you can't really understand Jesus or the Christian faith without understanding Isaiah. And finally, we're studying Isaiah because it's very relevant right now. There were a lot of Old Testament books that I actually thought about studying, but Isaiah seems very well situated for us at this moment. The prophet Isaiah preached during a time of national crisis for his nation. Uh, their world was falling apart. Their sins were catching up to them. Sound familiar? Our world is falling apart. Our sins are catching up to us. How will we handle this moral and spiritual crisis? That's why we're calling this series, overarching series, Isaiah for Today. Because behind the mysterious and very confusing ancient poetry is a timeless message for us about how to stay true to God when our world is falling apart. So that's why we're studying Isaiah. But what about that second question? What about how? How are we going to study this book? We are not going to go through Isaiah verse by verse or even chapter by chapter. That would be long and tedious. We're going to study Isaiah thematically. You see, there are certain themes that occur, that recur throughout the book of Isaiah. And we're going to group those themes together into seven separate sub-series during this overall series. Uh, we learn a lot, for example, from Isaiah about Judah's God. What this God was like, what this God cared for. It's going to be one of our series, Judah's God. We learn a lot about Isaiah himself, Judah's prophet. What was it like to be a prophet? What kind of prophet was Isaiah? It's going to be one of our series. We learn a lot about Judah's call, what God expected from Judah. We learn a lot about Judah's future, what happened to Judah. We learn a lot about Judah's hope, what they were looking forward to. And we learn a lot about Judah's king, uh, the coming Messiah who came in the person of Jesus Christ. Some of our favorite messianic prophecies come from the book of Isaiah. We're going to get to those, although you're going to have to wait until the end of the series next summer to get to the messianic prophecies. I know that waiting for 10 months to get to the Messiah might be a long time, but uh, Israel had to wait centuries for the Messiah. We can wait 10 months. Or just read ahead, Isaiah 60 or so. They're there for you. So we're going to study Isaiah topically, but during this, our first series on Isaiah, Isaiah we're not going to study the king, we're not going to study uh, Judah's God or Judah's future. We're going to focus in on Judah's sins. The whole reason God commissioned Isaiah into ministry was because of what Israel and Judah had become. 
They become deeply corrupt nations deserving of God's wrath. So we can't really understand the book of Isaiah without taking a long, hard look about at what these nations had turned into and asking ourselves the question if we're turning into the same. So with no further ado then, let's just jump into the book. We're going to start a few chapters into the book to Isaiah chapter 5. It's a very famous chapter, and it might actually give us a good summary of why God sent this man to confront these people and us. The passage in Isaiah 5 is called the Song of the Vineyard. Let me read it to you. It's Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of grapes, good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard only cries of distress." Now, as far as Isaiah goes, this is one of the more famous passages from the book, mostly because Jesus quotes it in one of his most famous parables that we actually studied a couple months ago. The passage is a poem, but it's also a story. It's a story about a man who builds a vineyard. He builds it lovingly. He builds it carefully. He clears it of rocks. He digs up the earth and he plants choice, choice vines. He builds a wine press. He even builds a tower in which to live and guard, protect his investment. Why does he build this vineyard? He builds it to grow grapes and produce good wine. And he spares no expense as the man asks, what more could have been done for my vineyard? Nothing. He did everything that a vineyard needs to produce. I like this image of a vineyard because it's one that we can appreciate. You might know this, but Missouri, our beloved state, is a little bit of a wine state. You drive out 30 minutes or so, you're in wine country. You have your choice of wineries. My parents live out in Augusta, towards Augusta, on Highway 94. And every time we go out there, we drive by and visit these fantastic wineries out in wine country. Uh, Augusta, out in Augusta, uh, Defiance Ridge, Montel, Blumenhof. I've met the people who build and run these wineries, and they are of a different sort. They invest their whole lives into these places. These are not business ventures. These are love affairs. I have a friend named Mark who built and owns a winery down south called Wild Sun. 
Uh, it's a beautiful place. It's got an old mansion, patios, old trees, great wine, great beer. It's cared for by a man with a staff who love what they do. There isn't anything they haven't done to make this winery successful. Uh, Mark has told me three times the story of how he came to start this winery, and he gets more excited as he tells it every time. That's what Isaiah is describing, a man who loves his vineyard. Now, in Isaiah's story, of course, the winery is not a winery. The prophet spells it out. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So the vineyard is Judah, Israel. The owner is God himself. And God didn't plant Israel as a vine just to make good wine. God established this vineyard to produce good fruit. And in the Bible, fruit is another metaphor. Fruit is a metaphor for righteousness, righteous lives, filled with goodness, holiness, self-control, kindness. That's why God established the winery, not to produce wine, but so that they might have everything they need to live quality lives and be a blessing to the world. That was always the point in God choosing Israel from among the nations so that he could fill them with his righteousness and that they could be a blessing to the world. That was the point in God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt so that he could fill them with his righteousness and be a blessing to the world. That was the point for God clearing out the promised land to give Israel the land of Canaan, a land filling with milk and honey, so that he could plant them as vines, so they could fill them with his goodness and be a blessing to the world. As these things go, though... All was not well in the vineyard of Israel. Business was not booming. What happened? The grapes went bad. The prophet writes in verse 2, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. You can't make good wine out of bad grapes. Grapes go bad all the time at vineyards. Sometimes it's mold. Sometimes it's pests. Sometimes it's rain, not enough rain, too much rain. Mark tells me all this. Conditions have to be just right for good grapes. If they're not, you get bad grapes, you get bad wine. Not just bad fruit, but terrible fruit. In fact, the original Hebrew for bad fruit here is stink fruit. That's what bad fruit is in the original Hebrew. It's just stink fruit. It's stinky fruit. That's what Isaiah says. He looked for good grapes, but he found only stink fruit. Judah had become a nation of stink fruit. What kind of stink fruit? All kinds of stink fruit. That's one of the things we're going to look at during this series on Judah's sin. Judah worshipped false gods. Judah committed sexual immorality. Judah practiced the wrong type of politics. Judah tolerated immorality in their leaders. Judah ignored the poor. Uh, Judah became just another nation. And finally, God had had enough. He had been patient with his vineyard. He had nurtured it. He had pruned it. He had warned it, but the Lord of the vineyard had reached his limit. So what was he prepared to do? He tells us. I will take away the vineyard's hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Now this seems vindictive. It's going to destroy his own vineyard. Wild hate. Because God had better things in mind for his people. They weren't just a random nation. They were his people with a sacred calling, and, and sin is serious. You can't just ignore the poor for centuries and expect that God's going to be okay with that. Yes, God is merciful and gracious and forgiving and eager to forgive them, but they didn't even care to be forgiven. 
So after many centuries, God had had enough. Their sin needed to be judged. That was true for Judah. That was true for Israel. And that's true for us. We are now God's vineyard. The vineyard of Israel has been destroyed, but the church is the new winery. We are to be God's holy people, a light shining on a hill. All of God's expectations for Israel and Judah have been transferred to us, but are we doing any better than they did? Are we any more of an improvement on the Judah of Isaiah's day? Aren't we just as sinful? Aren't we just as immoral? Won't our sins catch up to us? Will God ignore our sin forever? We learn from Isaiah that he won't. We've seen this play out in living color in the media quite recently. Maybe, for example, you've been following the slow descent of Jerry Falwell Jr., Falwell Jr. is the namesake of his father, Jerry Sr., who was a Baptist pastor and political leader. Falwell Sr. lambasted America for its sad moral decline. He started the Moral Majority in the 1980s to help restore America to traditional morality. He founded Liberty University to be an institution of Christian academic learning and moral instruction. Upon the death of Sr.'s life in 2007, he handed the keys of his kingdom to his son and namesake, Jerry Falwell Jr., Jerry Jr. grew the university and used it as a stage upon which to build his own profile, his own political power. He became a friend of the president and was offered a position on the cabinet. Falwell Jr. didn't seem to have his father's moral strictures, though. He is accused, credibly, of using his power to make himself and his friends rich. According to reports, he hired lawyer Michael Cohen to recover lewd photographs that he had taken of his wife. He is on the record as saying very uncharitable things towards groups of people he just doesn't like. He posted a picture recently of himself drinking on his yacht with his zipper unzipped, embracing a young dame, and he and his wife admitted to having a years-long affair with their pool boy. What's perhaps most tragic is that the Liberty University board, handpicked by the Falwells, knew about many of these indiscretions for a long time, and continued to excuse them. And even after he was forced to resign from the university, he was given a $10.5 million severance package. Talk about stink fruit. Jerry Falwell Jr.'s sins caught up with him. They always do. What we do in secret will be brought to light. God judged him in the same way he judged Judah. He let his enemies run him over. He let the media get what they needed to humiliate him. As we'll see in Isaiah, oftentimes that's how God judges us. He stops protecting us from our enemies. He stops protecting us from the natural consequences of our own stupid decisions. Our sins will catch up to us too. Our sins will bring us down. You see, before we get all judgy, on Jerry Falwell Jr. We should remember what Jesus says about judging others. And what does Jesus say about judging others? Don't. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged, he says. The difference between Jerry Falwell Jr. and us might just be that we're not under the lights with the media looking to expose our every moral foible. I mean, imagine the news stories if the media got hold of all your most embarrassing moments. 
We only judge Jerry Falwell to distract ourselves from our own problems because we produce stink fruit too. And we will be judged for it. The New Testament warns about this. In the book of Galatians, for example, Paul, the Apostle Paul, reminds us that the church is the vineyard of God. We were built to be a light to the world. And if we are not that, we will be snuffed out. As the Apostle writes, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you might not have committed all those sins, like orgies and the like, witchcraft, but don't distract yourself by looking at the like really heinous ones and forget the other ones in there, like selfishness, envy, factionalism, divisiveness. I sin like that all the time. We all do. The American church is not much of an improvement over ancient Israel. I mean, one of our leaders is exposed as a moral hypocrite, and the media is more upset about it than Christians are. We tolerate sin because we know we're sinners. That's not what we were created to be. God did not build his church, his vineyard, so lovingly so that we would produce stink fruit. He built his church so that we would live fruitful lives of righteousness. In this same passage, Paul goes on to say, but the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the grapes. That's the fruit we are called to grow. Now, is that possible? If the people of Judah and Israel didn't succeed much in producing good fruit, are we going to do any better? Are you going to do any better? Am I going to do any better than them? Well, maybe not by ourselves. But we have hope where Judah and Israel didn't. For example, we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, empowering us to live lives of righteousness. Judah didn't have that. We have have the example of Jesus Christ who modeled for us in perfect illustration the holiness of God. Judah didn't have that. And we have the mercy of God Reminding us that forgiveness is available to all who repent. No matter how much you stink today, you can be forgiven. You can be washed clean of your stench. All you need to be forgiven is to confess your sin, believe in Jesus, and be baptized into his church. That's how we avoid God's judgment. That's how we fulfill our calling as his vineyard. We have what it takes to live fruitful lives. The spirit, the example of Christ, the mercy of God. And also, we have something else. We have God's promise to not give up on us. We will find in Isaiah that God's judgment on Judah is not final. God always has a plan to continue his work. Even in destroying the vineyard, he has plans to rebuild. And we see those plans throughout Isaiah as well. He destroys the vineyard so that he might rebuild it. In Isaiah chapter 27, the prophet looks forward to a great day in the future 
when the Lord's vineyard will be restored. The Lord says, on that day, I will sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. All the world will be filled with fruit. Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom. All the world will be filled with fruit. Our sins will be forgiven. On that day, the day of Christ's return, our sinful deeds will be replaced by holy acts. Our lust will be replaced by purity. Our violence will be replaced by peace. Our sorrow by joy. On the day of Christ's return, that will happen. But it can also happen now. In fact, it must happen today. We are God's people. We are his vineyard. We are the garden of his delight. The world is hungry for our fruit. The world is thirsty for our wine. So by the power and the grace of God, let's live the lives God called us as his chosen people to live. Let's live the lives God called us as his chosen people to live before he comes and burns the the place down. Because that will happen too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bold, poetic words of prophets who remind us of things that we don't want to hear. That you're a holy, righteous God who created us to be your special people. Not because we're special, but because you are special and because your mission is special. All the earth will burn in a great display of fire from the ground and the sky. Even scientists agree with that, that all the earth will burn. We're not going to survive. Our sins are going to catch up with us. Our sins of racism, environmental neglect, conflict, hatred, discord, sexual immorality. Our sins are going to catch up with us. And we're going to face your wrath and your, your punishment. That's going to happen. We see it. We see it in history. We see it happening. Our sins are catching up with us. But there is a way out of this. It's by your forgiveness. It's by the power of your spirit. As we jump into our study on the book of Isaiah, help us see ourselves in these people. Help us hear Isaiah's words as they heard them. Whatever you tear down in the world, you tear down so that you can rebuild. Even as you tear down our lives, we pray that you rebuild them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us live lives of purity and goodness. Help us repent of our sin so that we can be the light shining on a hill that we are called to be. Help us live fruitful lives of love, servanthood, and humility. Thank you for this morning and this opportunity to learn from your word. Bless our study. Bless our lives. Give us open ears, open eyes, and open hearts, and open minds. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit.
Amen. And we also want to close this morning by praying together the words of the Apostles' Creed. Do this on the first week of every month. Words that will appear on the screen behind me for those of you who need them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he will come to judge the living and the dead and believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.